0: As you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the, the wisest man to ever live, is talking. A lot about us so we're only three chapters in, and it, like it's kind of depressing, right? This book he's talking about life under the sun, life apart from God, and just how it's all uh, meaningless. And in our passage today, he starts off talking about how seeing under the sun, even in the place of justice, there there's wickedness, even in the place of righteousness that there's wickedness. It got me thinking of uh, years ago, I I served on uh, jury duty. And I'm one of these weird people that actually enjoys jury duty uh, for the most part. Um, And I served on a case where um, a man was being charged with with several things, uh, drunk driving, uh, evading, and uh, suspended, uh, driving wall suspended, and... The way that it went is he was driving a, a dirt bike, a motorcycle, a dirt bike on the paved road, which it wasn't street legal, and so it was on the outskirts of town, and, and it just so happened that behind him uh, was a sheriff's deputy that just came up on him just as circumstances would have it, and the guy was weaving in and out and, and whatnot, and so the officer turned on his lights but not his sirens. This was during the daytime, and the the uh, motorcycle didn't have mirrors, and so it's kind of questionable did the guy know that he was being pulled over. And so um, they went a little ways and they went around a corner, and the guy on the bike went into the shoulder and he wrecked his bike. So the officer pulled in behind him and said something on the bullhorn, and they made eye contact. And so that was the definitive point where you knew the guy knew that he was being pulled over. And he picks up his motorcycle and he's running with his trying to kickstart his motorcycle while, while running away with it. You know, obviously trying to escape. And The officer tackled him and took him to the ground. He had his his, uh, uh, body camera on, and so we had to sit for 90 minutes as a jury and just listen to this exchange between the officer and the guy while the guy's sitting right here in the courtroom, uh, just with his head you know, sunk into his his hands, uh, embarrassed over the matter. And um, we listened to him, put the guy in the car, and he's just nothing but belligerent all the way. They were probably about 15 miles on the outskirts of town, so they had a little bit of drive into the town, and so we – hear this body camera footage of just belligerents all the way into town. And they book the guy in the jail. And again, the body cameras are still on. It was just nothing but belligerence. And the guy, uh, while he's in the cell, strips down naked, climbs up on the bars and defecates. And we hear all this un- unfold on the thing. And we have to listen to this as a, as a jury. And this went on, it was a, the trial went on for about a day and a half. He refused um, field sobriety tests. And so they had to get a warrant to draw his blood. And that took six or seven hours before they could draw his blood. And by the time they drew his blood, his blood alcohol level was below the legal limit. But the question was, what was it you know six or seven hours ago? And so they bring in this toxicologist, a forensic toxicologist from the state police. This was absolutely fascinating to me, the math and the science of alcohol dissipation in the body. And he spent a half a day. It was about four hours that this forensic toxicologist testified um, to the fact that the blood alcohol level of this gentleman six or seven hours prior to his uh, uh, blood draw could have been over the legal limit, but it also could have been under the legal limit was kind of the the end of his uh, um, story. And so after about a day and a half of listening to this trial, we, as the jury, went into the deliberating room, and we have to decide on these three charges. Okay, driving while suspended, that's pretty cut and dry. Either the license is suspended or it's not. That was a pretty easy one. Um, the the D, uh, DUI, that, that seemed pretty obvious to us after the toxicologist's testimony and hearing the story. Uh, but we had to deliberate on this charge of evading. And... The charge of evading says in the state of Oregon that you have to be in the vehicle or on it if it's a motorcycle. The guy wasn't on his motorcycle, uh, and it has to be running. And the the guy's motorcycle wasn't running. He was obviously trying to escape, pushing his bike away, trying to kickstart it. Um, But he didn't fit the charge of evading. And so even though it was obvious he was trying to escape, we had to find him not guilty on that particular charge, basically on a technicality of him being charged with the wrong thing. Some, something like this is sort of what Solomon is talking about, that even in the place of justice, that there is unrighteousness. Even in the place of justice, there, there is wickedness. Right? Not, not that this was a totally wicked thing, but, but a travesty kind of happened. right? The, this, this gentleman was trying to get away, and we had to find him not guilty, basically, on the, the loophole uh, that somebody charged him with the incorrect charge. Uh, and he walked on that charge. The other thing I was thinking about this week as it pertains to justice and and wickedness and righteousness and injustice uh, is just even thinking about some things our family has walked through in the last year with some legal things. Um, Some wrongs were committed towards our family, and and we had to go through a legal process uh, in order to get justice for some of those wrongs that were committed. And and I can tell you on kind of this side of it that, that justice kind of swung in our favor in this, but but I can tell you that even though justice swung in our favor, it doesn't right the wrong things that have happened. It, it helps maybe a little bit, but but it doesn't right doesn't make right the wrong things that happened. Solomon is talking about life under the sun um, as a metaphor for living life apart from God, and and, and we know that this life that we live here on this earth, as good as our justice system is in America, it's probably the greatest justice system in the world. It's still flawed. It's still broken. Injustice still happens. Right? Unrighteousness and wickedness uh, are part of our justice system as much as we might like to think otherwise because our justice system is administered by, by administered by flawed people. Broken sinners. And so those things make their way through our justice system. And Solomon is acknowledging that even in the place of justice, that there was wickedness, even in the place of righteousness, that there was wickedness. Now, I don't think he's talking specifically about the legal system here, but that's kind of where our mind goes when we think about righteousness, and we think about justice, right? It goes to our our legal system. And and at, at best, our justice system is flawed. At worst, it's just flat-out broken, right? And Solomon is acknowledging that that even in those places where we would expect justice and righteousness to be, um, living under the sun, living in, in God's world apart from God himself, that we can't have any expectation that that we're going to find justice in the, the most complete sense of justice or righteousness in the most complete sense of righteousness. I've titled the message today "Injustice, Death, and Oppression." That sounds like a really exciting title, doesn't it? <laughs> Injustice, death, and oppression. Um, because these are the things, these are the things that Solomon is seeing as he's writing these words. And what we're going to see by the time we get to the end of our passage today is that that he's just saying, apart from God, this is all that we have to expect in the world. It's all we have to expect apart from Christ is injustice, death, and oppression. Now, for us that are here today, we we have Christ, and so we we can have more of an expectation than these things, and that's the hope that we have. But Solomon is painting a pretty bleak picture uh, about the lack of hope that the non-Christian, that the non-believer has in this world. The best that we can expect is injustice, death, and oppression. And that doesn't sound real exciting, does it? The hope that we have for those of us that follow Christ um, as it pertains to injustice is this. In Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21, the Apostle Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now here's, here's the thing for the Christian. Okay, for the non-Christian, what what we just read Solomon say, that that can be your expectation in this life, that in the place of justice and in the place of righteousness, that wickedness still exists. But for the Christian, we're told that we don't have to avenge ourselves. It's not on you and me to make right the things that have been done to us that are wrong. It's not on us to do that we're told by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 to leave it to the wrath of God. And I heard one pastor one day kind of put this in some really simplistic terms. And he said that that based on this passage, one of two things is going to happen in the end. Think of your worst enemy. Think of a person that's wronged you in just a really grievous sort of way. Think of that person that if you saw them walking down the street, you would turn and go the other way. In the end one of two things is going to happen that God is either going to damn that person or redeem that person. One of the two. They're going to be damned to hell for all eternity, or God will redeem them and make them his. And there is nothing worse that you and I can do to our worst enemy than for them to suffer at the wrath of God. No amount of ignoring on my part or your part, no amount of giving the cold shoulder compares to suffering the wrath of God for your enemy. Conversely, you you and I can't look at that person and do anything to make right about them the things that we deem to be wrong beyond God bringing full redemption to that person's life just like he's done to you and me, Christian. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. So the system of the world that we have, life under the sun, life apart from God, that that even in the place of justice and righteousness, wickedness exists. But life with God, for the Christian, we're told that we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about making the wrong things right. We don't have to worry about exacting justice. We don't have to worry about the scales being tipped in our favor because in the end, God will either damn or redeem every single person on the planet. And because that's true, then the Apostle Paul can go on and say this, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. I don't know about you. I've talked about this before. I think probably the hardest command in all of Scripture is the command to love your enemies. Because for me, on my best day, zero interest in loving my enemy. Like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be told to do it. I don't want to have to try to do it. I don't have any interest in loving my enemies. And here the Apostle Paul tells us that if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him, give him something to drink. The reason that somebody is our enemy is because they've done something wrong to us. And the last thing that we want to do is to show them any kind of kindness, right? But backing up, if, if it's true that every single person on the face of the earth will experience damnation or redemption then really we don't have to worry about that. And there's this sense in which we can say that we don't really have any enemies because God is going to sort that out in the end in a way that I can't sort out. God's going to sort it out. and God's going to do his thing. And so for me, it's up to me, it's up to you to realize that it's a pretty level playing field when we start to look around the room. Right? Those, those who follow Christ, those who don't follow Christ, we're, we're all like sinners in need of a Savior. All of us. And that, that's, that's kind of the great equalizer where it levels the playing field for us. And so the hope that we have, when we back up, the, the hope that, or the lack of hope rather, that the non-believer lives with is that at best, there's wickedness in the place of justice. At best, there's wickedness in the place of righteousness. But that's the best hope that the non-Christian has. The hope that the Christian has is that God's going to sort it out in the end. And I just don't have to worry about it. Now, I realize it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to walk in it. I realize that. But we have a hope as Christians, and that's the thing I want to communicate today, is that we have a hope As Christians that the non-Christian doesn't have. This is where Ecclesiastes gets real depressing because it makes painfully obvious the lack of hope in the life of the unbeliever. But it's where we can get real excited as Christians to be reminded that that we do have a hope. We're not subject to this lack of hope that's present in the life of, of the person who doesn't follow Christ. The Apostle Paul says to not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And we're told elsewhere in Scripture that God has prepared for us, in Ephesians chapter 2, good works that we would walk in them. He's prepared for us beforehand, before the foundations of the earth were laid, good works so that we would walk in them. As Christians, it's not our job to walk the earth fighting with every last breath that we have for justice. And in saying that, I'm not, I'm not saying that we never engage in that battle for justice. There's a lot of injustices in the world that, that we as Christians ought to fight against, right? So, so don't misunderstand me here. But we don't have to spend every waking moment worried that if we don't fight for justice, it's not going to happen. Because God will sort it out in the end, and, and God's justice will prevail, and God's righteousness will prevail. And so we we can live in this freedom knowing that God will sort it out in the end. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Solomon then goes on to say in verse 17, he said, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter And for every work. And again, just reminding us that that in the end, God will sort this out uh, and that God will, will have his way. In verse 18, he says, That I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes into the earth. We'll pause there. So Solomon, then he talks about injustice, and now now he's talking about death. this death that he's talking about. He's comparing man to animals. And he's saying, basically, what advantage does man have over the animals? What advantage does humanity have over the beasts of the earth? Matter of fact, he says that God is testing us that we may see that we are but beasts. And again, he's talking about life apart from God. Living in God's world, but not living according to God's ways. And we're meant to see the futility to which we are subject. Romans 8 talks about that. That we're subject to futility by God's design. So that in our being subjected to futility, that it might cause us to look to God and pay attention to God. And Solomon reminds us of this futility and reminds us of this test what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts are the same that one dies he says and so dies the other they all breathe the same air he says and so mankind has no advantage over the beasts for it's all vanity all go to one place all are from the dust and to dust all return we have no way of knowing living life again apart from God. Whether when a human dies, their spirit goes upward, or an animal dies, their spirit goes downwards. We don't have any way to know that. But what we do know is that, that we all return for, to the dust, right? This is, again, just part of the depressing nature of Ecclesiastes. It makes me think of uh, Matthew chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but uh, Matthew six twenty-five to 33. This is Jesus speaking, and Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body, not more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Solomon is comparing humans and animals, saying basically we all kind of have the same fate, right? We live a life, and that life comes to an end. Depending on what kind of an animal we're talking about, maybe animals like their lives come to a brutal end, right? Kill or be killed, it can be. But, but we all come to an end. We all breathe the same air, right? The wild animals breathe the same air that you and I breathe. We live a lifespan and we, and we end up dust, back to the dust, right? Depressing thought. Again, the lack of hope that Solomon is trying to display for the one who doesn't follow God. The best hope that you have as an unbeliever, as a non Christian, the best hope that you have is that your life is gonna to come to an end and it may not be a brutal death. But we actually have we have a hope for those of us who are Christians that, that go far beyond that. This passage in Matthew, he's telling us to look at the birds. They don't they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather. They don't really do much of anything, but God makes sure that the birds have something to eat. God makes sure they have a place to live. Then he makes the point, are are we as humans, are we not more valuable than the birds of the air? Sure. Sure, we're more valuable. We we have a capacity, a God-given capacity to have relationship with him that the animals don't have. We as humans have a God-given capacity to know God in a way that no other part of creation has. It's unique to us. It's unique to humans. Jesus calls our attention even to the flowers of the field. Right? You think that the birds really don't do anything? Look at the flowers of the field. They really don't do anything. Yet God takes care of them. They're here today and gone tomorrow and God takes care of them and God gives us the beauty of those things to enjoy. And so we don't have to be anxious worrying about what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink or what we're going to wear. Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these other things that they're just going to, they'll take care of themselves. You'll figure out what to eat. You'll figure out what to wear, you'll figure out what to do and where to go. But seek first the kingdom of God. Solomon in Ecclesiastes is talking to people who are seeking anything and everything but the kingdom of God. Solomon, as a matter of fact, was a guy that sought out every pleasure that this life has to offer. And in the end, spoiler for the end of the book, he comes to this conclusion that it's all meaningless, it's all vanity. <laughs> what matters Solomon concludes, is that we know God. That's what matters. And that sounds a lot like what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will take care of itself. Right? It's an exhausting life when you're chasing after hope and you're looking for hope in all of the wrong places. I had a conversation with somebody just this last week. Who told me that they just wanted to be happy? That's the goal of their life, the supreme goal of their life is just to be happy, which I can get behind that goal. I want to be happy, right? I'm guessing you want to be happy too. But the conversation that we had talked about that 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 that's a lousy goal to have, to be happy. Because how much happiness is enough? It's kind of like money. How much how much money is enough? Just a little bit more, right? It's kind of this never-ending pursuit to chase happiness. We don't find happiness by chasing happiness. We find happiness by pursuing God. We find happiness by pursuing other things, and and happiness comes as a result of that. Both Solomon and Jesus conclude to know God, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because there's no greater hope, there's no greater hope in the world than that you and I can know our Creator. There's no greater hope. No greater hope whatsoever. In verse 21 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, sorry, verse 22, he says, So I saw that there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So, so far we've talked about injustice, that there's wickedness and unrighteousness in the place of justice. We've talked about how man's fate or humanity's fate is similar to that of the animals, right? We live and then we die. And Solomon concludes with those Two things that there's nothing better that a man or that a person should do than to rejoice in their work, for that is your lot. We have no way, he says, of seeing what will come after us. We have no way. And so, even that is a little bit of a depressing thought for Solomon to say that the best that you have in this life under the sun, this life apart from God, the best thing that you have is simply to enjoy your work. What's depressing about that is that if we enjoyed our work, we would call it a hobby, wouldn't we? (laughs) Like if it was enjoyable, it wouldn't be work necessarily. And Solomon is saying the best thing that you have to the unbeliever is that you can enjoy the toil of your work and the things that come from it. So, So you better make now count. You better work as hard as you can while you can. You better build up as much as you can while you can. Because just like the animals, one day you're here and one day you're gone. That's kind of all there is and that's our lot in life. I just was really struck this week in in, um, studying through this passage of just the lack of hope that there is apart from God. I don't know what your story is, but I, I grew up in the church. I've been in the church my whole life and not not saying i haven't had you know my moments out there but but for the most part of kind of walked the straight and narrow and i don't i don't understand i from an experiential standpoint i don't understand how people live life apart from god because i've not experienced that and i i used to think that was weird but i thank god for that now i don't understand it because i've never had to do it there is an extreme lack of hope when we try to live in God's world, but not according to God's ways. And if this isn't depressing enough, Solomon goes on in chapter 4 to be even a little more depressing. He says, Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought... The dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And so if injustice isn't depressing enough, if death isn't depressing enough, then Solomon talks about the oppressions that are done under the sun, the oppressions that are done in the world apart from God. He talks about the tears of the oppressed and how the oppressed have no one to comfort them. He talks about how all the power is on the side of the oppressors and there's still no one to comfort the oppressed because the oppressors seem to hold all of the power. And then he concludes that, The dead, who the people who have already died that aren't in this world anymore, they're pretty fortunate because they don't have to put up with the oppression that exists in the world today. And the people who are dead are more fortunate than those who are still alive. But better than them both, he says, are the ones who have yet to be born and haven't seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Again, kind of a scathing indictment about the world. And again, for, for the non-Christian, for the non-believer, this is the hope that you have. This is the hope that you have, is that, that maybe the injustices won't be that bad. Maybe death won't be that bad. Maybe the oppressions, just maybe they won't be that bad. But Solomon is saying, like, for the one who has yet to be born, they're, they're better off because they haven't lived and experienced these things in a world apart from God. This makes me think of a scene in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with him. And they will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and they will be my son. Solomon, again, painting a picture of life under the sun, life apart from God as being pretty bleak. Not a lot of hope. The oppressed are going to continue to be oppressed. The oppressors are going to continue to oppress And there's just not a whole lot we can do about it. But we know how the story ends, and so we see at the very end of the Bible this picture of all of those things going away. We see Jesus wiping every tear from the eyes of those who cry. We see Jesus saying that death shall be no more because he's the one who conquered death. We see Jesus saying that there shall be no mourning or no crying or no pain. These things have all passed away. Do you see the contrast between the hope of the Christian versus the lack of hope to the unbeliever? I'm trying to paint this picture for you today in that. Jesus saying in Revelation 21 that I am making all things new. Jesus Righting all of the wrongs. Jesus serving justice in the most perfect way. Jesus displaying his righteousness without flaw. Jesus reminding us that it's done. What is it that's done? He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's defeated the devil. His kingdom fully established and fully realized. Jesus being the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, and offering to the thirsty to give from the spring of life without payment. And to the one who conquers or the one who drinks from the spring of life, in other words, this will be that person's heritage, that God will be your God and that you will be his people. Don't don't let it be lost on you today, the hope that we have as Christians. We've got many more chapters here in the book of Ecclesiastes of Solomon reminding us the hope that this world doesn't have in it. We're going to be reminded about that every week for a while. But as we're reminded about the the lack of hope that exists in this world, let us also be reminded of the hope that exists for the one who follows Christ. That in the end, that God will have his way. That in the end, God will right every wrong. That in the end, justice will prevail. That in the end, righteousness, his righteousness will shine. And we have that hope no matter what this life throws at us, no matter how depressing it can be, no matter the difficulties that we face, that we deal with, we have the hope that Christ will make it all right again. And so don't let that be lost on us today. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning. Thankful that you love us and thankful that um, that we have a hope that cannot be found anywhere else in this world. And so, God, help us to be reminded of the hope that we have in you. Help us to look to that hope daily daily in our lives. Help us to be people that proclaim the hope that we have. I think of Peter even exhorting us to always be prepared to give a reason to the hope that we have. And so, God, help us to be people that proclaim hope to those around us throughout the world. Help us to do this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.